Chapter Seventeen, Part One, of Run to Earth, a Novel, by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gail Mattern. Chapter Seventeen, Doubtful Society, Part One. Victor Carrington still lived in the little cottage on the outskirts of London. Here, with his mother for his only companion, he led a simple, studious life which, to any one ignorant of his character, would have seemed the life of a good and honourable man. The few neighbours who passed to and fro beneath the wall which surrounded the cottage knew nothing of the inner life of its occupants. They knew only that of all the houses in the neighbourhood this was the quietest. Yet those who happened to pass the house late at night always saw a glimmer of light in an upper chamber, and the blue vapour of smoke rising from one particular chimney those who had occasion to pass the house frequently after dark perceived that the smoke from this chimney was different from the common smoke of common chimneys sometimes vivid sparks glittered and flashed upon the darkness at other times a semi-luminous green vapour was seen to issue from the mouth of the chimney these facts were spoken about by the neighbours and by and by people discovered that the smoke issued from the chimney of victor carrington's laboratory where the surgeon was frequently employed long after midnight making experiments in the science of chemistry. The nature of these experiments was known to no one. The few neighbors who had ever conversed with the French surgeon had heard him declare that he was a student of the mysteries of electricity. It was therefore supposed that all his experiments were in some manner connected with that wondrous science no one for a moment suspected evil of a young man whose life was sober respectable and laborious and who went to the little catholic chapel every sunday with his mother leaning on his arm those who really knew victor carrington knew that he was without one ray of belief in a divine ruler and that he laughed to scorn those terrors of heavenly vengeance which sometimes restrain the hand of the most hardened criminal he was a wretch who seemed to have been created without those natural qualities which in some degree redeem the worst of humanity he was a creature without a conscience without a heart and yet he seemed the most dutiful and devoted of sons is it possible that filial love could hold any place in a soul so lost as his it is difficult to solve this enigma victor carrington was ambitious and to gain the object of his ambition he was willing to steep his soul in guilt but he was also cautious and calculating and he knew that to commit crime with impunity he must so shape his life as to escape suspicion he knew that a devoted and affectionate son is always respected by good men and women and he had studied human nature too closely not to be aware that there is more goodness than wickedness in the world base though some of earth's inhabitants may be the world is easily hoodwinked and those who watched the life of the young surgeon were ready to declare that he was a most deserving young man. He had his reward for this apparent excellence. Patients came to him without his seeking, and at the time of Honoria Eversleigh's arrival in London he had obtained a small but remunerative practice. The money earned thus enabled him to live. The money he won by his pen in the medical journals he was able to save, he knew how necessary money was in all the turning points of life and he denied himself every pleasure and every luxury in order to save a sum which should serve him in time of need 
Matilda Carrington was one of those quiet women who seemed to take no interest in the world around them, and to be happy without the pleasures which delight other women. She lived quite alone, without one female friend or acquaintance, and she saw little of her son, whose midnight studies in medical practice absorbed almost every hour of his existence. Her life, therefore, was one long solitude, and but for the companionship of her birds and two Angora cats, she would have been almost as much alone as a prisoner in a condemned cell. There was but one visitor who came often to the cottage, and that was Sir Reginald Eversleigh. The young baronet contrived to exist, somehow or other, upon his income of five hundred a year, but as he had neither abandoned his old haunts, nor put aside his old vices, the income, which to a good man would have seemed a handsome competence, barely enabled him to stave off the demands of his most pressing creditors by occasional payments on account. He lived a dark and strange existence, occupying a set of shabby genteel apartments in a street leading out of the Strand, but spending a great part of his life in a house on the banks of the Thames, a house that stood amidst grounds of some extent, situated midway between Chelsea and Fulham. The mistress of this house was a lady who called herself a widow, but of whose real position the world knew very little. She was said to be of Austrian extraction, and the widow of an Austrian officer. Her name was Paulina Dursky. She had bade farewell to the fresh bloom of early youth, for at her best she looked thirty years of age. But her beauty was of that brilliant order which does not need the charm of girlhood. She was a woman, a grand, queen-like creature. Those who admired her most compared her to a tall white lily, alike stately and graceful. She was fair, with that snowy purity of complexion which is so rare a charm. Her hair was of the palest gold, darker than flaxen, lighter than auburn. Hair that waved in sunny undulations on the broad white forehead, and imparted an unspeakable innocence to the beautiful face. Such was Paulina Dursky, one charm alone was wanting to render this woman as lovable as she was lovely, and that was the charm of expression. There was a lack of warmth in that perfect face. The bright blue eyes were hard. The rosy lips had been trained to smile on friend or foe, on stranger or kinsman, with the same artificial smile. Hilton House was the name of the villa by the river bank. It had belonged originally to a nobleman, but, on the decay of his fortunes, had fallen into the hands of a speculator, who intended to occupy it, but who failed almost immediately after becoming its owner. After this man's bankruptcy, the house had for a long time been tenantless. It was too expensive for some, too lonely for others, and when Madame Dursky saw and took a fancy to the place, she was able to secure it for a moderate rent. The grounds and the house had been neglected, the rare and costly shrubs in the gardens were rank and overgrown. The exquisite decorations of the interior were spoiled by damp. Madame Dursky was a person who lived a certain style, but it speedily became evident that she was very often at a loss for ready money. Her furniture arrived from Paris, and her household came also from that brilliant city. It was the household of a princess, but of a princess not unfamiliar with poverty. There was a Spanish courier, one Carlo Toas, a strange, silent creature, whose stately and solemn movements seemed fitted for a courtly assembly 
rather than for the unceremonious gatherings of modern society. The next person in importance in the household of Madame Dursky was an elderly woman, who attended on the fair Austrian widow. She was a native of Paris, and her name was Sophie Elzer. There were three other servants, all foreigners, and apparently devoted to their mistress. The furniture was of a bygone fashion, costly and beautiful of its kind, but it was furniture which had seen better days. The draperies in every chamber were of satin or velvet, but the satin was worn and faded, the velvet threadbare. The pictures, china, plate, the bronzes and knick-knacks which adorned the rooms, all bore evidence of a refined and artistic taste, but much of the china was imperfect, and the plate was of very small extent. The existence of Paulina Dursky was one which might well excite curiosity in the minds of the few neighbors who had the opportunity of observing her mode of life. This beautiful widow had no female acquaintances, save a humble friend who lived with her, an Englishwoman, who subsisted upon the charity of the lovely Paulina. This person never quitted her benefactress. She was constant as her shadow, a faithful watchdog, always at hand, yet never obtrusive. She was a creature who seemed to have been born without eyes and without ears, so careless was the widow of her presence, so reckless what secrets were disclosed in her hearing. By daylight the life of Madame Dursky and her companion, Miss Brewer, seemed the dullest existence ever endured by womankind. Paulina rarely left her own apartment until six in the evening, at which hour she and Miss Brewer dined together in her boudoir. They always dined alone. After dinner Paulina returned to her apartment to dress for the evening, while Miss Brewer retired to her own bedroom on the upper story, where she arrayed herself invariably in black velvet. She had never been seen by the visitors at Hilton House in any other costume than this lustreless velvet. Her age was between thirty and forty. She might once have had some pretensions to beauty, but her face was pinched and careworn, and there was a sharp, greedy look in the small eyes, whose color was that neutral, undecided tint that seems sometimes a pale yellowish-brown, anon a bluish-green. All day long the two women at Hilton House lived alone. No carriage approached the gates. No foot-passenger was seen to enter the grounds. Within and without, all was silent and lifeless. But with nightfall came a change. Lights shone in all the lower windows. Music sounded on the still night air. Many carriages rolled through the open gateway. Broms with flashing lamps dashed up to the marble portico, and hack-cabs mingled with the more stylish equipages. There were very few nights on which Paulina Dursky's saloons were not enlivened by the presence of many guests. Her visitors were all gentlemen, but they treated the mistress of the house with as much respect as if she had been surrounded by women of the highest rank. Night after night the same men assembled in those faded saloons. Night after night the carriages rolled along the avenue, the flashing lamps illuminated the darkness. Those who watched the proceedings of the Austrian widow had good reason to wonder what the attraction was which brought those visitors so constantly to Hilton House. Many speculations were formed, and the fair widow's reputation suffered much at the hands of her neighbors. But none guessed the real charm of those nightly receptions. The secret was known only to those within the mansion, 
and from those it could not be hidden. The charm which drew so many visitors to the saloons of Madame Dursky was the fatal spell of the gaming-table. The beautiful Paulina opened a suite of three spacious chambers for the reception of her guests. In the outer apartment there was a piano, and it was here Paulina sat with her constant companion, Matilda Brewer. In the second apartment were small green velvet-covered tables, devoted to whist and écarté. The third and inner apartment was much larger than either of the others, and in this room there was a table for rouge et noir. The door of this inner apartment was papered, so as to appear when closed like a portion of the wall. A heavy picture was securely fastened upon this papered surface, and the door was lined with iron. Once closed, this door was not easily to be discovered by the eye of a stranger, and even when discovered, it was not easily to be opened. It was secured with a spring lock, which fastened of itself as the door swung to. This inner apartment had no windows. It was never used in the daytime. It was a secret chamber, hidden in the very centre of the house, and only an architect or a detective officer would have been likely to have discovered its existence. The walls were hung with red cloth, and Madame Dursky always spoke of this apartment as the red drawing-room. Her servants were forbidden to mention the chamber in their conversation with the neighbours, and the members of the Austrian widow's household were too well trained to disobey any such orders. By the laws of England, the existence of a table for rouge et noir is forbidden. All these precautions were therefore necessary to ensure safety for the guests of Madame Dursky. Paulina herself never played. Sometimes she sat with Miss Brewer in the outer chamber, silent and abstracted, while her visitors amused themselves in the two other rooms. Sometimes she seated herself at the piano and played soft, plaintive German sonatas, or later on vert, for an hour at a time. Sometimes she moved slowly to and fro amongst the gamblers, now lingering for a few moments behind the chair of one, now glancing at the cards of another. One of her most constant visitors was Reginald Eversleigh. Every night he drove down to Hilton House in a hack-cab. He was generally the first to arrive, and the last to depart. It was also to be observed that almost all the men who assembled in the drawing-rooms of Hilton House were friends and acquaintances of Sir Reginald. It was he who introduced them to the lovely widow. It was he who tempted them to come, night after night, when prudence should have induced them to stay away. End of chapter 17, part 1